what is the water cooler conversation like? Not what they tell you, what's on the internet, because no one's going to tell you all their bad stuff. But what's the water cooler conversation like in an organization? That's something that you may not learn immediately, but you do want to pay attention to that. You are now tuned in to the Macy Muse Unplugged, a pop-up podcast variety show helping consultants along their journey to greatness with your host, management consultant, author, and blogger, Christy Lindor. Hey, my go-getters. Welcome to the Meesey Muse Unplugged podcast show. I'm your host, Christy Lindor. Super excited to be bringing you episode 35. And today we're actually doing a quick win segment. If this is your first time tuning in, quick wins are when I have the opportunity to connect and discuss ideas, products, and services to really help round out your consulting toolkit. Today's guest, we've got Dr. Froswar Booker-Drew. A little bit about Dr. Froswar. She's actually a senior executive in the public sector space. She's a seasoned consultant as well as an author. And Dr. Foster is actually going to come on today's show and really break down work cultures, toxic work cultures, as well as really how to deal with conflict. So I think this is going to be a really informative and popular episode because I have gotten a lot of questions and people really looking for guidance on how to deal with toxic culture. If you're in the midst of one, you've got a colleague that's in one, I would say definitely check out today's interview. I think you'll be able to walk away with some really helpful, actionable tips. A couple of other announcements before we get started with today's interview. The book launch is nearing. So next week, February 20th, mark your calendars, go-getters. The book will officially launch uh, the paperback. So if you've ordered or pre-ordered the Misi News, thank you so much for your support. Those pre-orders are going to ship starting next Tuesday. So I look forward to hearing from you. So feel free to drop me a line, misimuseunplugged at gmail.com. Love to hear your thoughts, reactions. Please, you know, snap book selfies, post them online. Love to hear, you know, feedback as you start to receive the book. And another quick update, go-getters, if you go to the podcast website at www.mecmuse.com, you'll see that there's going to be a little bit of a transition with the site. We're actually adding some new features. We're going to be really transcribing each episode. So going back to the very first episode, go-getters, you'll be able to see the transcription of those and, you know, additional kind of advanced information. I've gotten a lot of feedback through my improvement study I did about a month ago where people wanted to see, you know, a little bit more of some of the written transcripts. So we're doing that. And so over the next, probably say about over the next six to eight weeks, you'll start to see that slowly transition and you'll see a little bit of a redesign to the website to account for that. So check that out. Again, feel free to drop me a line if you've got any other feedback or or questions. So with that, let's get started. So, Foswar, welcome to the Misi Muse Unplugged. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think this is going to be a really good conversation because, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of the topic of toxic work cultures and conflict in the workplace. And I think, you know, when I think about my years in consulting, Foswar, I don't think there was a year that didn't go by where I didn't deal with either one or the other or both in some respect. And so, you know, I think this is going to be a really helpful conversation to a lot of listeners out there. But I think before we get started in today's conversation, 
maybe you can take a moment and introduce yourself to the go-getters of the Muse Muse Unplugged. Well, thank you once again. Again, Dr. Francois Booker-Drew, I currently serve as Director of Community Affairs for the State Fair of Texas, largest fair in the country, and I'm responsible for all of our education initiatives, our community involvement, and then our philanthropy and our local community. This past year, we had over 2 million visitors, so it's a huge 23-day event, and I get a chance all year round to really make impact and do some great things and work with wonderful foundations and organizations in our local community. But in addition to that, I'm an author and I've been a consultant and still do some consulting on the side and have been doing that for, you know, about 15 years. And um, mom, just a lot of different roles that I'm sure most of your listeners are juggling as well. Absolutely. So thank you for taking time. You sound like a busy lady, Francois. So thank you for talking to us today. Maybe, you know, you talked a little bit about your, you know, the event that you're doing. Maybe we can take a step back. I know you're an author, you're a consultant. How did you get started in the line of work that you do? Maybe you can share that with us. You know, it wasn't something that was intentional to begin with. I really thought I was going to go to law school. And I remember I was writing a paper for a conference as an undergrad and went to the law library at UT Austin, and I saw all of these students on a Saturday, and this one guy walks up to me, and he goes, do you want to do this? This is what your life is going to look like, and they looked miserable, and I thought, mm, no, I don't know if I really want to do that at this point, but I had been volunteering so much, and at the time, there really wasn't this, like, nonprofit management leadership you know, past that was available, people just went into social services. And so I ended up as a college student doing a lot of volunteering. And then I got an opportunity to, you know, at 21 years old to work for a nonprofit that was helping young people that were first generational students begin to look at college as an option. And from there, how I got into consulting was the need was just there. People were coming to me after some of my experiences and they said, hey, we would love for you to help us with program development. And it moved from the program development piece to me helping people with fundraising and donor cultivation and, you know, brokering relationships. And it just kind of spread into a practice that allowed me to do strategic planning and a lot of different things. But it really started with me having the experience in the field first before I moved into actually doing a lot of the consulting. That's very interesting. And, you know, for the experience that you've had, what would be some advice you would give your younger self, Rasla? Oh, wow. Do not undervalue what you bring to the table. I remember as a young consultant, I would negotiate too far down because I wanted the opportunity so badly that I would allow people to cut my fee down. And I thought, well, let me do this because at least it gets my foot in the door and I can prove what I'm able to bring to the table. That's not always a very good idea because what then happens is the client feels like, well, you've done this before. Let me try to take you down even more. And so I would say to my younger self, recognize the value that you bring to the table. One, all money is not good money. And two, every opportunity is not necessarily for you and be comfortable with that. Such great advice. I so love that. And I talk about that all the time. I think especially early career consultants, to your point, you know, I think sometimes there's a, you know, kind of not confident in our abilities quite yet. Or, you know, I've heard sometimes consultants feel like they're so young and their clients are a little older. You know, any any thoughts there, Russell, that you can share with our listeners if you've had any of those experiences? Oh, 
Definitely. I remember even supervising a team and I was very young and I had people on my staff who were the age of my grandparents. That was difficult. What I had to recognize were the power dynamics. And I had to own the fact that there were things that I did not know. And it was not my job to prove to them that I knew everything. My job was to listen and to figure out how do we solve for whatever the issue was for, you know, that department. And so being okay and comfortable in saying, I don't know the answer. I think when you're young, it is always the need to validate or be validated and to show people, hey, I've got my degree. I know what I'm talking about. The reality is, even though I have a PhD now, there's a lot I do not know. And I'm okay with that. That's why it's so important to bring other people to the table and allow the teams or the people that you're consulting with to give you information. And there is something that everyone has to offer. How do you tap into that and create an experience that's beneficial for everyone that's coming to the table? Yeah, that's actually such a nice segue, Francois, to the topic of du jour. <laughs> We're talking about toxic culture. So, so maybe let's start with that. So, Francois, maybe you can share with the go-getters, you know, in your definition of a toxic culture, what does that comprise of? And, you know, feel free to share any stories if you've ever experienced that. Like, what are some of the telltale symptoms that an individual may be working in a toxic culture? You're in an environment with leadership that does not listen. The environment may be one that there's a lot of sabotage. The environment can include manipulation where people are promised certain opportunities and then those opportunities aren't presented. And there's micromanagement that goes on. There is a lot of checking up on people. You know, I had a client a couple years ago, an amazing organization. They had hired a lady to come in who was extremely skilled. And this is a problem for a lot of organizations that they don't pay attention to. You can have someone who's extremely skilled, but they don't have people skills. And they can come in and create such a toxic environment that the great work that you were doing is now sabotaged and your morale begins to die. And so you're not performing at the level that you once performed at for your clients you know, for the people in the community, for your donors, all those folks were being impacted. And they brought this lady on and she was so difficult to deal with. And it became such a bad situation because the staff began to blame the leader for allowing it to happen and not taking a stand on that. And she would do things like she put cameras up to see what people were doing and they didn't know they were being watched. Uh, I mean, Yes. I mean, it was just such a very damaging situation to professionals. You know, these were people who were highly skilled, degreed, had enormous experience, and yet they were being micromanaged. They were being called all hours of the night. There was no balance. The expectation was for them to work, you know, whenever she felt like they needed to work, even though they had schedules, she felt like if she worked all these extra hours, they should do the same thing as well. And so it took a lot for me to work with them as a consultant to try to rebuild the morale and bring the trust back for senior leadership with the staff. And there are so many examples. I've even gone through it myself where there's been leadership who were more concerned with results than they were concerned about the people that they were working with who provided the results and how damaging that is to morale. And yet how in the midst of those situations do you continue to stay where you have peace, 
How do you stay in a place where it can be damaging to your own morale, but being the type of leader where you make sure that you are trying to set a course for the people you're working with so that they're not suffering? Because toxic environments are not just, you know, something that impacts only the individual. Everyone in those environments are suffering. Professors at Antioch have a book on toxic leadership. It's Mitchell Cusey and Elizabeth Holloway. And I would suggest that your listeners get that book. What most people don't realize, and I learned this from their book, is that the cost to an organization is enormous when you have a toxic culture. Because not only does morale suffer, but productivity begins to suffer. And so how do you help organizations identify those behaviors and then course correct as quickly as possible? I love what you just said there, Francois. You know, when you mentioned about kind of dealing with individuals, you talked about the woman that came in and, you know, over time, it just kind of unraveled. Are there other ways that you can see that coming in the door? You know, I feel like when I think about my, and I say that because because when I think about my own experiences, Francois, I feel like on the outside looking in, everything looked normal, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's everyone up. talked a great game for whatever. Yes. And this could be a project. It could have been at an interview or whatever it was. But then it like, you know, it's when you get into the door, then it unravels. Any thought for go-getters, you know, that may be, you know, it's a new year. They may be looking for a new job, a new project. What are some ways that you can, you know, figure that out before you even walk in the door? The first question you ask an organization is how do they deal with change? That's going to give you a lot of insight on what they do and what they believe. Organizations that do not embrace change are going to be places that are difficult to work in quite often. They're going to have a hard time adjusting. And so if they say we've always done it this way and we're going to continue to do this this way, you've got to question the culture of that organization. You also want to ask about what does leadership look like? If it's very hierarchical and, you know, and yeah, sure, in organizations, there are going to be people in leadership. But if there are not opportunities for the leadership to be distributed and shared, When someone has a great idea, how do they move that idea up the chain? And is that embraced and is that encouraged? Those are the kinds of questions that you want to ask. And if you can, ask them the people who work there so that they don't feel like, oh, you're asking about, you know, my particular boss, but you're asking about the culture. That's very important to pay attention to. I think when we apply for jobs, we're so interested in the position that we're not paying attention to the larger picture that's going to impact our position. And so those are some questions that I would suggest very quickly that you ask up front about how an organization exists. What's the value system? And not the value system in terms of, you know, what they tell you, but what's really important to them. You know, there is a book that I love that's called The Artistry of Leadership. And they say within every organization, there are these different qualities that exist. So power is one and are the political. How is power expressed in that organization? Is it that everyone submits to this one person? Are there people that have other opportunities, as I mentioned earlier, to rise to the occasion because they have a great idea? So what does power look like in the dynamics of power with those in leadership, with those who are not in leadership? That's one piece. What is the symbolic piece or culture of the organization? Meaning, what is the water cooler conversation like? Not what they tell you, what's on the internet, because no one's going to tell you all their bad stuff. But what's the water cooler conversation like in an organization? That's something that you may not learn immediately, but you do want to pay attention to that and look at what are the, what's the history? 
How have they, you know, dealt with people in the past? What's the record around retention of employees? Do they have an enormous amount of turnover? That's a red flag if you want to be a part of that. You know, do they constantly move through consultants? If they're doing that, then you can go on and bet that you're probably going to be next on the list after a short amount of time in dealing with them. So those are some things you want to pay attention to. But in addition to those things that I mentioned, you want to also look at what their processes are. If you're in a place that does not have any structure, depending on your personality, that could be a great entrepreneurial place to come in and create. For some, if there's no structure and you have no idea about the direction that they're going in, that's going to be very difficult to be in that environment because there's no accountability. So, you know, and they go on and they have other areas that they talk about that exists within organizations and within businesses and companies. But I think to your listeners, those are just a few that they should really think about and ask questions as they pay attention to, you know, not just employment opportunities, but consulting opportunities. That's going to be critical to their success. Great insights, Francois. I, I really love that. And go-getters, what I'll do, I'll also put a link, you know, to the books that uh, Francois mentioned. I know you mentioned Artistry of Leadership and um, a book earlier. So we'll, we'll definitely put those links as well as links to uh, Francois' book and information. Now available on Amazon. Management consultant and author Christy Lindor shares career secrets based on 15 years of experience working at top firms in a new book called The Misi Muse. A hundred plus selected practices, unwritten rules and habits of great consultants. The Misi Muse provides insights, stories and strategies on the unwritten rules of the consulting profession. Christy conducted research and connected with 50-plus industry titans across 27 professional service organizations on what makes a great consultant. For book reviews, tour dates, and more info, go to www.mecmuse.us. I wanted to pivot with kind of the next topic and dealing with conflict. <laughs> so toxic culture, I feel like, is the cousin of conflict. What are some thoughts you have there, Fasla, about conflict in the workplace? You know, we all have conflict, and I think we have to be comfortable in knowing that that is going to exist. As individuals, we deal with conflict within ourselves. I mean, there are certain things that we do that may not line up to the behavior that we were taught as kids or what our parents believe. And so I think it's becoming aware of conflict is there. In our society, I think we have become so trained to believe that situations have to be either or. It either has to be a perfect environment or it's not. And we have to learn how to wrestle with this ideal of both and. You can have an environment that works well, but there is going to be conflict because people are at the table who have different ideas. When you introduce diversity of thought you know, of people, of, you know, situations and possibilities, there is going to be conflict because there's a power dynamic. Someone may feel that there's something that they're going to lose. How do you create an environment and space for people to be authentic, to talk about what they're afraid of losing? Because that's really at the core of conflict. When I'm uncomfortable with something, I feel like you're taking something away from me. And that bothers me, or you're hurting me or harming me in some kind of way, whether that's a physical or psychological, I feel like there's something that's going to happen to me. And as a result, I'm losing something. So how do you create the space and opportunities for people to share how they feel without feeling like something bad is going to happen for me being authentic? 
And again, that goes back to culture. How do you create a culture that says it's okay for people to have disagreements and to agree to disagree? The problem becomes when people don't want to deal with conflict, that we find ourselves in organizations and with opportunities that end up being very painful. And so it's going to be important to recognize wherever you go, that's going to happen. When it becomes toxic and the conflict does not have an opportunity to be resolved or there's an impasse and there is no opportunity for people to agree to disagree, it's just going to create more pain and it's going to create more division, then that becomes a time, in my opinion, that you have to make some very serious decisions. Anytime a conflict or you know a toxic environment impacts your health, that's the time that you really have to have some evaluation that, again, all money is not good money. And your health and your sanity is more important than keeping a position for notoriety or even for a check. So you have to begin to figure out what are your non-negotiables and draw the line in the sand to say, these are the things that I'm not willing to tolerate and be very clear on those things. I think we focus a lot on what we want, but I don't know if people focus enough on what are the things that you don't want what you're not willing to tolerate and put up with. And I think when you have good boundaries, whether it's a toxic work environment or if it's conflict, having those good boundaries are going to allow you to have some level of safety and protection. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, when you mentioned defining your boundaries, I think it also, Fasua, helps you create a filter to which you can look at opportunities and projects and client engagements from a different lens because then you'll pick up on those cues before you even walk in the door. Yes. And you have to be clear on, you know, what your lane is. I had an opportunity recently where someone wanted me to come and speak. I could have gone and taken the opportunity, but was it one, what I really wanted to do? Two, was it going to get me closer to the ultimate goal that I had? Or three, is it going to provide some level of experience for me, you know, or allow me to help someone in a very different kind of way? And out of the four questions, three of them were no. So I decided to give it to a friend of mine who really the opportunity was more aligned with her skill set than it was with mine. And I think it's very important to be clear about what you can and cannot do. Otherwise, you will find yourself like I did very early in my career saying yes to everything. So you become the jack of all trades. You're really not a master of anything. And there's nothing wrong with having multiple skill sets. I don't want to say that at all because I do. But I think it's being very clear on what those skill sets are so that you're not manipulated or, you know, thrown this shiny ball and saying, yeah, this is going to be great. And it doesn't benefit you at all. Right. Right. You could, man, I'm sure as go-getters are listening to what you just said, you just really dropped some real knowledge there because it's, it is so spot on. And I think we struggle with that all the time. So I hope go-getters, as you listen to this, you start to really craft your world and create your world for 2018. So you're not dealing with any of the things that Fasa just highlighted so eloquently. So I'm going to pivot, Fasa. I want to talk about your book, Rules of engagement. So, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about the book, but also let us know, why did you write it? <laughs> the book was the craziest thing, how that happened, which I'm learning that opportunities do not always come in the form that you believe that they will. Sometimes you just have to be open to possibilities. And that's what happened with the book. I was doing a research group while I was working on my PhD and I had all these women come together. And the whole point of the group was to see how they built their network, because I'm really big on social capital. How do you build these relationships, these associations that help you with your career or your personal life? I mean, we all need these circles of influence that 
you know, inspire us or help us to get where we need to go. And so I bring these women together to see if they're going to do that. And they started sharing these stories that were unbelievable. And I knew all of them, but they didn't know each other. And I didn't know as much about them as I thought I did. And I'm listening to these stories and I'm crying and I'm learning more about this ideal of narrative identity, how our stories, you know, or what we tell about ourselves really allows people to understand who we are. And sometimes we're telling stories that are getting us results that we really don't want. And so that was very helpful to me in listening to them. So I took their stories and began to create this workbook that really help people think about what are the stories you're telling about yourself? What are the narratives that you are giving in community? And are those narratives helping you connect to the people that you want to connect to? Before you can really think about a network and building one, I think it's important to really know you're good, you're bad, and you're ugly. And so that was the point of the book was to use their stories and insights I gleaned from listening to them for months, along with some of my own personal experiences and helping people think about these rules of how they connect to each other, but starting with their own personal narrative. It was initially designed for women. And I thought it was going to be for a certain age group. And what I found was college and young professional, college women, young professional women were the ones who were going nuts over the book because they were trying to figure out how to build a network. And so the book really helped them with that. But the other audience that I didn't really initially, you know, design the book for were men. I had a number of men say, this is applicable to our situation as well. And so it really is to help people think deeper. I'm really big on this idea of self-reflection and how do people take the time to think about their stories and think about their day so that they make better decisions and more informed choices. And I think in our society, we don't do that enough. Well, that's what the workbook is for, is to help people really begin to self-reflect on what they say about themselves. You know, I need to pick up that workbook. (laughs) Sounds really good. I think self-reflection, at least for me, it's been extremely powerful and Mm -hmm. it's really brought a lot of clarity in my life. And so I am all for any tools to help me do that particularly better. And go-getters, we'll make sure we'll put a link out to the book so you can check it out for yourself. Well, you know, I know we're up for time, Francois, but this was such a great conversation. If individuals are interested in contacting you or connecting with you, what are ways that they can do that? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook, but it's probably a lot easier to connect with me on LinkedIn. My email address is there and you can find me. I have a website that's Frossoise Rules and it's F-R-O-S-W-A-S-R-U-L-E-S.com. You can reach out to me on the website and I'll send me an email. I'm very open to connecting because, you know, I not only feel like it's great to be able to share, but I learn so much from other people when we connect to each other and share our lives and and do this journey together. So I'm so open to, you know, those possibilities of making new friends. Well, you've heard it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much, Dr. Francois Booker-Drew for joining us on today's show. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. And thank you, my go-getters, for tuning in today. This is Christy Lindor with the Misi Muse Unplugged Pop-Up Podcast. And here's to your journey to greatness. Tune in every Friday for new episodes syndicated on iTunes, Google Play Music, and many more. Visit www.misimuse.com for more information.